Welcome to Project 50's Keyside Walk. Please take a moment to listen to this introduction before beginning your journey around the city. To enjoy the walk fully, listen carefully to the directions given at the start of each chapter. You can always skip back if you're unsure of where you should be. After you hear the directions, you'll hear the title of the piece and its author. Pause the recording here until you're in the right place. If you're standing comfortably, then we'll begin. The walk begins at Newcastle's Central Station. Inside the building, stand in front of the departures board. Song by Laura Holmes Steely snakes weave in and out of the once gold-gilded shell, now dissected for modern economic times. Sleekly silvering over miles of track, trains slink off to soggy seaside towns, or smoked rob city stops. Doors wheeze compulsively forming tiny, tin-like capsules of people packed in, then off as grey, forlorn bystanders. Watch, wait, as smiles are transported to sights and situations they'll never really know. Countless goodbyes stain the paint street platforms, making dividing lines sparkle bright. Upon a return, many are welcomed by arms wide-flung in hope and a pushy, piercing heart of the city crouched by the time. Footsteps combine with the shuffle of sometimes oiled carriages forming a rising cacophony that swells to encompass whispered yelling of platform attendants' futile speeches. Voices swirl and buffet off windswept crowds, and all flows into the deep, rumbling song, the sound of the city reaching crescendo as every new train departs. Leave the station by the main exit and turn immediately right. Follow the road down past the steps to the metro. As the road curves away to your right, cross by the pedestrian crossing onto Collingwood Street. Follow this street until you reach a crossroads. Turn right along St Nicholas Street and pause in front of the cathedral. The City Looks the Same by Tom Ward Nath, Nath, wake the fuck up! Jack slapped Nathan hard in the face. Nathan sat bolt upright and grabbed him by the shirt collars. You motherfucker. Oh, Jack. Oh, shit. Ow, my face. What's happened? You told that guy to fuck off in Tiger last night and told him you could dance with who you wanted to, so he smacked you in the eye. I can't fucking see, Jack. I'm blind. Didn't you stop him? Fuck me. Where are we? We're at Johnny's house. We should get off there, mate. You smashed his coffee table last night. Look. Jack pointed to the shattered remains which littered the living room carpet, along with bottle tops and some loose change that Nathan and Jack had been sleeping on, coin shapes pressing into their skin all night long. Jack got to his feet and looked around the room at the motionless shapes, also taking refuge on the floor. Jack, who are all these people asleep everywhere? We spend the whole night with them. They're Johnny's friends, aren't they? I don't think you want to see them either, mate. You, well, you said some things last night. All right, mate, let's go. Grab that plastic bag. We might as well have those unopened bottles over there. I guess it's helping to tidy up, isn't it? Nathan tried to smile, but his eye was too swollen for his cheek to move. They found the key to the kitchen door in the drawer and walked out into the dawn light. They were careful not to wake anyone and set off home as quickly as possible. Nathan munched a banana he'd taken from the kitchen and Jack carried the clinking bag of bottles. The streets were empty, except for a milk float and were wet with last night's rain. I don't even know where we are, mate, Nathan said between mouthfuls of banana. Me neither. We all got a taxi back last night. I think the train station is that way, though. A train station? Bloody hell, we've got a long walk. 
They walked along in the cool dawn air. It was the sort of air that helps the hangover because it's refreshing. But it also makes it works because it chills you beneath your clothes and makes you shiver and wonder why you're outside walking home with greasy skin and hair and a sore throat and muddy jeans at 5am. They walked in silence for 10 minutes. Nathan felt sick. His stomach was burning up with a residual booze mixed with anger at the events of last night. He looked around at the buildings they passed. The streets were alive with a sick boredom. The same streets, never-ending and never-changing. You could walk on and on, and round and round, and the streets would still be the same grimy roads that you had passed hours earlier. Brick walls crumbled and the weeds grew in gardens. Graffiti covered the sides of buildings. The buildings sat there quietly mocking this early morning journey home, smug in the knowledge of their dominance of the city. You know what, Jack? Look at this place. Look at it. Shitty little houses. Why the hell are we here? We're big fish stuck in a small pond. It's life, mate. Everyone's got to live somewhere. Everyone hates where they live. You just have to get on with it. Everywhere's the same. A car slid past like a phantom, and a blonde-haired girl stared out at them. To Nathan, it seemed as if she was looking right into his core and understood everything inside of him in those few seconds. He had never felt this level of understanding with anyone. Jack, Jack, did you see that girl in the car? I think I'm in love with her. Fucking hell, mate. You're in love with everyone, and of course everyone loves you. Nathan smiled. I can't help the way I look, mate, can I? Jack shook his head and rolled his eyes. They walked on a bit more and crossed through the dilapidated flats. A man walked past them and asked for a beer when he heard the clank of their carrier bag. Jack handed one out. Here you go, mate. Bloody hell, this town is full of wasters. It's not even six yet, is it? I feel like Holden Caulfield. At least he had a bit of a good time, though. Buying cocktails for girls. We just get thrown out. I don't know who that is, Nath. But it's your fault we get thrown out. Since she left, you've been on one all the time. Don't bring her up, mate. You don't know who Holden Caulfield is? Fuck me. I really am the only intellectual in this town. Fuck off, mate. You work at a fucking fried chicken shop. It's only temporary. One of these days, I'm going to tell that fat cow to stick a job. Anyway, being a baker's not much better. It's a job, though, isn't it? I get enough money to go out. I have a laugh. It's time you did the same. Stop being a prick all the time. Stop being so fucking angry at nothing. Get on with it like everyone else. By now, they'd come to the grassy hill that led down to the houses. Through a gate to their left was a path that led over to the old church. Nathan's parents had been married there, and their parents before them. You want to do that job all your life, Jack? You want to have a night out for the only thing you can look forward to when you're 40? Sorry, I've got some ambition. Sorry I'm better than this. Fucking shit town. How do you want me to be if not angry? I'm like a fucking caged animal. You talk so much shit, mate. You really fucking do. Do you think you're better than this town? This say looks the same as every other. This is normal life. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's not this say. Maybe it's normal life that's the problem. People need to open their eyes to this world. Jack interrupted him. You're too good for normal life. What the fuck are you talking about, mate? You're losing it. Fighting every time we go out. Smashing up Johnny's place. You're going to get arrested. And you've got so fucking arrogant. You never used to be like this. Here, have your beers. Jack threw the bag at Nathan and set off walking down the hill. Nathan stood alone for a minute, watching Jack walk away. He didn't want to go home yet. He opened the church gate and walked down the path. For a moment he stopped in front of the old building, looking up at the spire. The people who built this knew what they were doing. 
they had some vision. He reached out and touched the worn, moss-covered stone. Suddenly Nathan's hangover rose up in his stomach and made him gag. He looked for a bench to sit down and found one overlooking the houses below and sat watching the rising sun. The rays warmed him and suddenly he didn't feel so bad. Maybe this was going to be a good day. He reached into the bag and pulled out a beer bowl which he opened with his teeth. He took a swallow as he watched Jack walk off home in the distance. Continue along St Nicholas Street and under the railway bridge. Turn left when you reach the castle and pause before the steps. View by Paul Christian A view, his view. He stares at the steps, peers inside himself, then retracts, cooked. Blood spits in his veins like oil, his skin simmers, his eyes clamp shut now. Tears sting his pupils, gasping for breath. He sucks the air, hopes it will soothe him, ease him. To yesterday, tomorrow. But he's here now, nowhere. Yesterday, the view from the taxi. Plenty of skirt, plenty of punters. What more could you want? He tells one. Sitting in here, looking out there. The view from the taxi. Hoopla! He howls. The punter pays and the punter leaves. Leaves no tip. Leaves his phone. He'll never see that again. The meter's reset. There's no sight like it. The crimson hue traverses his vision. The digital beam flickers dimly through his brain. He picks up a punter. Watches them twitch as the meter rises. The eyes of a punter rarely abscond from the digital beam. The control centre of the taxi. Everything else is secondary. Blinded by boredom, he makes a bet. Guess the price. If he wins, a two-pound tip. He loses. Free lift for the punter. He knows the score. Plays the traffic. But he loses. But he doesn't care. Anything to get him through it. The punter the pays and the punter leaves. Leaves no tip. Leaves no impression. The view from the taxi. Colours and sounds seep through the windows. He tastes the past. The dewy lips of a fresh-faced girl. The faint scent of perspiration trickling from her neck. The quickness of her breath. His view becomes blurred. The lights of the city blend into one neon pool. His taxi a black stone, sinking aimlessly through the fluorescence. He can't think like this. Mustn't think like this. The digital beam trembles in his brain again. He switches the meter back to zero. He erases his thoughts and is reborn. He parks at the rank. Melts from his seat through the door into his crowd of peers. It's a circus, and the same set is on a never-ending loop. The view from the rank. Names like Robert, Martin and Stephen. Or Robbie, Marty, Stevie. Robbie talks. Son replies. Robbie disagrees. Every night. Marty does martial arts. He shows them a snap kick. Every night. Then demonstrates on terrified punters every other night. Stevie gambles. They all bet, but Stevie gambles. Every night something different. Corners multiplied by goals divided by substitutions. Gary steals. Every night. Anything. From a place in the queue to a £200 golf club. And what does he do? He absorbs their traits. Develops scattered photographs in the liquid sensory of his mind. And for what? To become a caricature? No. To help him through the day. There's a quixotic appeal to it for him. He takes a certain comfort in the same conversations. Did you get a good turn tonight? He 
gets a sudden rush when he spits. Hoopla! And a punter forces laughter. When he bets and wins. When he bets and loses. When he sees graceful smooth legs sliding tentatively up a skirt. Goosebumped by the winter chill. What more could you want? He'll spurt from his taxi. But there's a lot more. He's afraid to see it. View it. What he could have had. What he was deprived of. His brain flutters in and out of conscious in a state of indocility. Tastes of the past warp his surroundings. But he switched back to reality by a digital beam. The meter. It restarts and he's reborn. He's too old not to be a taxi driver. But much too young. It's becoming a part of him. A black shell on his back. Into which one day he'll recoil. A punter enters his taxi at the rank. And exit two miles down the road. Leaves no tip leaves him viewless. He makes his way towards the steps of the castle, on fire, his tears blissfully relieved of their captivity, his view strayed into his soul, a knotted furnace he always felt but dared not explore. Now he has, and now he has no choice. His taxi's been unshelled. He climbs the steps. He feels unburdened. He reaches the top, the twitch of the meter gone, faceless, bodiless, Viewless. In a cold whisper, he breathes. What more could you want? Behind you is a set of stone steps that lead down to the quayside. Take them, but mind your footing as you go. At the bottom of the steps, turn right. Then left over the pedestrian crossing. Meet the river under the high-level bridge. Dancing in the Dark by James Shearing The blind child flutters beneath the looming bridge. Like a groaning colossus, the steel hulk shields the little wanderer. Not with warmth or love, but indifference. Whilst the water rusts the ankles of the beast, corroding and engulfing like an elephant in quicksand. Between its legs, the child dances, headstrong against the wind. Her whirling hands nimbly slice the elephant's misty gasps. Cutting the air with her walking cane, she throws herself into the hulk's shadow, engulfing the black breath of the beast clicking the cane at her feet. And like a douser on a boat, she laughs. Her frail figure patters towards ivory, shines through the dim as her milky eyes crease, mirthfully, timid and graceful. She pierces the darkness with her sharp fame and dousing cane. Little waves crash into the bridge like enormous symbols, scattering static through her crystal hair. Twirling faster, her feet dash pebbles like percussion drums skittering away from her like bones on concrete. Rats flee, their claws applauding the threat of her spectacle. And then the symphony erupts, and the rumble of the bridge's very presence is a guttural horn which shivers through her bones and animates her feet until she spins with her head thrown back, hurtling into the roaring shadows, her walking cane trailing through the wind like shredded ribbons. Turn right and follow the river, until you reach the swing bridge. Hope by Raquel Osorno A bridge to hope by I am stuck working for an egoist, an expert in memory. I want only to forget, forget the bitter dagger wound of knowing too much and feeling too little. A bird builds its nest on my windowsill. Its chicks hatch and bloom under acacia blossoms. Hope flowers under the same boughs and brings me here. A bridge to something else. Something better. Something new. Hope gives me to you.
to the succor of your mouth and the liqueur of your lips. Noisy kisses, silent caress, dance in the kitchen. The water of you flows over and through me. A bridge to hope, a bridge to feel, a bridge to jump. The pebbles knock through me, but I won't let go. Continue alongside the river until you're beneath the Tyne Bridge. Your Wet Hair on My Face by Charlotte Mountford Past bridges of science and industry, under the cranes of regeneration, stolen elevated view of a boundary, riding electrical transportation, overshadowed and hiding nighttime haunts, the comedy club, the gentleman's club, the debauchery, the city night flaunts, in-house, chart, indie, electro and dub, we always said we'd buy it one day, revolutionise the revolution, leave tracks that go way beyond this railway, quixotic beats for more than the beaten, you may be in jeans ripped from crotch to floor, but cities don't dance for us anymore. Stay with the river until you are opposite the sage. Home by Sherry Garcia Angel Early evening, old couple, man and woman, standing at the promenade of the time, drinking and eating. Sounds of river. It's been years. Yes. Hasn't changed that much now. It's changed some. Some? You can say it's changed some. I don't remember how it was. That's because you're probably too old. I'm younger than you. That doesn't make you young. Not young, but younger. What's younger going to do for you? It'll do enough. I'll be the last to get a hip replacement. The last of whom? The last of you. Here's me thinking. What are you going to do with a new hip? Same as I did with the last one. Wear it out? Use it wisely. I'll have some people to testify you did nothing of that sort with the original one. You never complained. I guess not. No good reason to. Your old hip's just fine. Nothing old. It's just fine anymore. It's just that old. What's wrong with old? I'm wrong with old. Took me all that long just to get back here. What's the rush? No rush. I just want to know I can do it faster. I thought you didn't like faster. Walk faster. Oh. I just feel too old. You're not too old. You're just... Old? Old enough. Funny. That only sounds good when you are young. All right. Think of it this way. You're old enough to be back here now, drinking what you were drinking, at this hour, in my presence. I was never old enough for your presence. Are you suggesting I did something immoral? Immoral? Illegal? You were old enough back then, too. I checked. Your father checked. Oh, old pops, poor man. Now, I'm not saying you did something legal with me. I'm just saying you did something illegal. And that's what got us out there. Yes, out there. And now? We are back. It seems so. We are. Bags in the trunk and everything. Eating and drinking here, like we used to. Like we once did. Feels nice. Aren't we too old for this? No, on the contrary, we are... Old enough. Old enough. Sounds of kisses and laughter. It's not as cold as I thought it would be. That's good. Wouldn't wait to catch something. Is it how you imagined it? Wrap that scarf around you more, woman. I'm not cold. You could be soon. Is it? Hmm. 
This is how you thought it would be. I'm not sure I thought it would be anything. You must have thought sometimes. I doubt it. The scarf. Tighter, please. Did you miss it? I don't think I did. Did I? I wonder. Put this hat on, too. I look ridiculous. It'll keep you warm. Fine, all right. I'll please you this time. Now that's a good girl. A good old woman, you mean? A good old enough girl. Sound of kiss. I honestly thought you would miss it. Got nothing to miss here. Took it all with me when we left. A suitcase half empty with clothes you threw away first chance, except for that hat. And that scarf. You would miss none. I took you. I miss you. I'm still here, Tom. Yes. It's not time yet. They said he'll see you first thing tomorrow morning. This thing smells like an old man. It will do its purpose. Leave it on. I don't smell that bad, do I? All these years, you could have gotten a new scarf. I like this one. After we settle in the hotel, let's go take a walk and see what else has changed. You can afford a new one. We have plenty of time to kill today. Let's buy one. I'm keeping this one. You made it. Annie, he's the best. That's what they all say. We have nothing to lose. You could lose me. Let's cross that bridge when we come to it. It's going to happen. It's not happening now. And look, we are even back here. We are old enough to be back, you say? Yes, old enough. Let's get you to a warm place. It's starting to get chilly. I'm not cold. You'll be warm there. We'll get a proper dinner in your stomach. It's been months since I've managed a proper dinner, Tom. Time to change that. Now that we are back, let's celebrate it with a big, unhealthy one. Why are we here? Why are we really here? He's the best, Annie. We are lucky he's agreed to see us. Why did you bring me here? I wanted to... I still have... Mm. What's that word? Blackout. Keep with the time until you reach the Millennium Bridge. Your Life Goes On by Christine Goodwin North Thine My Father, South Thine My Mother Join at Rivers Meet, an ancient sacred place just west of Hexham, and flow down to the sea. When the waters of time reach you to reflect your graceful curves, they have travelled far, and their journey is almost done. I too have come far, journeying through more years than I have yet to travel, years that span millennia, taking me unwillingly to my final destination. And here I stand with you looking back and reflecting on the long, hard journey, and then turning to look ahead with a winking eye to where the North Sea waves beat upon the piers at Tynemouth. But you are young. Your life goes on. Turn back on yourself and follow the river until you're in front of the law courts again. Until the Water Runs Clean by Emily Graham Bartenders work in silence on a Saturday night. There simile isn't any point in pleasantries when no one can hear you. The drinkers on the other side of the divide might as well be on the other side of the universe, constituent parts of a wall of flesh and elbows and insatiable thirst. First rule, keep it moving. Second rule, if you can't understand what they want, give them what they need. They won't know the difference. So the bartenders reel from punter to punter, part of an endless pas de quatre, 
with the wall, the bottle, and the till. Spot, nod, turn, pour, slide, take, spin, went their dance. They would wheel away, clutching grubby notes, and then turn, wiping their brows to face the wall. Spot, nod, turn, pour, slide, take, spin. So when she saw the new lad trying to remonstrate across the bar with a slobbering red face, she decided he was an idiot who needed the practice. She'd already had a break, but the manager didn't seem to mind. It was a still night. The river's vast girth was subdued, speckled by the quayside's lights breaking into white shards on its surface. She strolled back from the water's edge a little way and leaned against the drinking fountain in front of the law courts until something, some change in the rhythm of the water perhaps, attracted her eye. She watched a man climb out of the river. He laboured over the railings, hampered by his sodden clothes, and half fell into an oily heap on the pavement. Amused, she looked around to see who else had witnessed the man's extraordinary antics, but the quayside seemed suddenly and unusually quiet. The man had stood and was walking towards her, and as he approached she noticed that it was no high-spirited prank which had led him to be in the water, because this man wasn't just wet, he was wretched. His colourless clothes might once have been a suit, but now they sagged with the weight of excess water and river debris giving a silhouette which was a fraction beyond shapeless. It was deformed. She took a couple of involuntary steps backwards. He stopped at the drinking fountain, which is by now a little way to her right, and leaned in, apparently to greet the water. But as soon as the water met his lips, he seemed to recoil. With an effort, he collected his limbs and shuffled around to face the river again. As he slipped back into the depths, the sound of broken glass in the mid-distance signalled the reappearance of the revellers, and she turned to go back to work. The following night he had seaweed dripping down the back of his neck. A small fish fell out of his sleeve and was left to convulse on the ground while the man shambled towards the drinking fountain. Again he leaned forward in anticipation, and again he turned away in despair. Next time she was so determined not to miss this extraordinary nightly pantomime she almost ran out of the bar, tripping over a prostrate drunk in her eagerness. She stopped a little way from the fountain and waited. When he came, his appearance had degenerated. Dark liquid oozed from his mouth, his clothes were slime-ridden rags. She watched as he tried to shake his thirst, waiting for the moment when despair replaced Hurst. As he shuffled round to begin his journey, she stepped forward. Why? she asked. He started at her voice, his wild eyes cast feverishly around him. When those eyes met hers, she suddenly understood the terrible truth about desperation. It is driven by hope. Once he had registered her, he seemed seized by a frenzied need to tell. He half gestured with a shaky hand back towards the fountain. Until the river runs clean, he whispered, and then he pointed his miserable bones towards the river again with a finality which suggested there was no more to say. Wait! she shouted, stepping forward and raising her hands as if to restrain him. Her hands stopped before she touched him, though. What does that mean? There was a querulous note to her voice, a shade of impatience. His body was convulsing in tiny spasms, and his expression, as it looked towards the river, was anxious. All the little things! he rasped. He looked about him in fear now, but her head gave a quick shake of irritation. 
He was becoming increasingly agitated, but there was an urgency in his expression, as if he had to make her understand. His head jerked towards the mighty law courts behind them. Justice ha happens. And here he broke into a convulsive spasm, unable to control his juddering jaws sufficiently to form the words. Somewhere else, he managed at last. And then he seemed to implode with the effort. He stumbled towards the river and hurled himself, almost thankfully, back in. She pondered these events for the rest of her shift and well into the next one. She was thinking as she charged a group of men for two rounds instead of one, taking the money, spinning away. When her break came, her feet took her back to the river's edge and she waited. The familiar form, dripping algae and filth, crept over the balustrade and dragged itself towards the fountain. It leaned in with the same attitude of hope and trepidation she had seen before, but this time it drank and drank. When he finally straightened up, the water had washed part of his face clean. He was younger than she had thought, and surely taller too. He looked more, well, human. She watched him walk away, shedding a little more of the river's shackles with each step, and then looked into the drinking water. It was filthy. Until the water runs clean, she murmured in confusion. But she looked down at her shaking hands, and suddenly she understood. She walked towards the railings, slipped through the bars and closed her eyes. The river was waiting. Leaving the river behind, cross over the road towards the law courts. Next, take Broadchair, the road on the left of the courts. Follow this until you reach a sign for Dog Bank. Sadness is Madness by Andrea Allen The rain comes down, soft at first, then harder. So hard that it makes the neon street signs at one end of the alley erupt and shimmy. I see the nearby light of a cafe and seek refuge. Head down, eyes towards the ground, I stumble in my hurry, occasionally glancing up to see the direction in which I am heading. My vision blurs with the water passing over my face, like tears which I try to brush away. Stubbornly they continue to flow. Eventually reaching the cafe, I push open the door. They all sit by themselves, the clientele, sipping their lattes and cappuccinos, fingers poised over their iPhones and laptops, the art of conversation lost in the presence of technology. I head towards the counter, aware of the rain falling from my coat. I glance around to see if anyone has noticed, but no one has moved. Engrossed in their thoughts, the atmosphere becomes broken down and isolated, uncomfortable. Seating myself at the counter, I drape my coat over it to dry. Smoothing creases from Gucci trousers, I hook my heels over the rung of the stool. The guy serving walks over, and I order a mocha frappuccino. I put my Gucci handbag on the counter my compact out of the interior pocket and click it open. Bright red lipstick is smeared across the glass, tainting the reflective surface, reminding me of the previous drunken night out. I reapply some lipstick, then use the mirror to survey the room whilst pretending to sort out my makeup. The first guy, over my shoulder on the right, sits with the Financial Times strewn across the table, his black coffee resting on the black lines. He takes a sip puts it back on the table and instead decides to sit with it in his hands. The cup leaves crescent coffee rings on the paper, smudging the words. The M's become blurred, the I's become L's, the T's become crosses. From the corner of my eye, I catch a woman sitting at the opposite end of the counter, watching me. I close the clasp on the compact and put it back in my handbag. 
Pulling the frappuccino towards my chest, I draw the straw out and watch the dark icy liquid fall onto the white whipped cream. I hear the buzz of my blackberry and rummage through the contents of my handbag to find the soft leather holder and slide out the phone. The screen instantly declares Steve. I press the green phone button. Hi, Steve. No, I'm sitting in a cafe. Yes, I got the flowers and the note. The theatre? I don't know what the girls are doing yet, no. Can I call you tomorrow? Sorry, what? Uh, oh, yes. Um, I suppose we'd go out for a meal before the show, if I'm not doing something with the girls. Yes, you have a good night, too. Bye. Bye. I press the red button, cutting the connection. Sounds like a nice gentleman. The woman from the end of the counter. For the first time, I notice her appearance. She sports a black beret, white hair frizzing out from underneath. She wears red lipstick, similar to that smudged on my mirror. Her face is white with foundation. Slim cracks unveil the pink flesh underneath. Yes, I suppose he is. I smile, turning back to my drink, letting the straw play idly between my fingers and hoping she'll go back to eating. I came in just as the rain started. We single girls have to have a pot in a storm. Am I right? I'm right. I live in the neighbourhood. Come in here all the time. I like to watch the street traffic. I watch as she lifts her ice cream glass off the saucer, reaches into her bag and pulls out a small brown medicine bowl. She tips a single white pill onto the plate and with a bright silver spoon sets about crushing it. Lifting up the saucer, she sprinkles the white fragments onto the chocolate ice cream. Lithium. I like it on my ice cream. What kind of mood elevator do you take? I raise my eyebrows. My body moves back slightly, shocked by such openness. I haven't. I'm not. I don't take any. She smiles, and as she does, the cracks in her makeup all line up, completing the mask of foundation. She points her spoon at me. I used to be like you. I was with this guy. Thought somebody better would come along. You know, waiting for my Cary Grant. Never happened. That was in 79. I underestimated the power of romance in a relationship. Thought a good job, good pay and a car were important. She pops another spoonful of lithium-laced ice cream into her mouth. Sheer delight comes over her face. Her voice becomes exaggerated, high-pitched. I love this. I turn back to my drink. White cream lines the inside of the glass, forming two opposing crescents, each one slightly discoloured by the mocha liquid. All that's left at the bottom is the remnants of the bitter-sweet frappuccino, coffee and chocolate separating. Behind the counter, there's a large coffee machine. I see two people reflected in its polished surface on the path outside. They smudge their way across the stainless steel until they reach the cafe door. He pushes down on the handle and the door rattles. The glass flexes and the bell tings. He tries again, this time pushing down harder. It resists. He places his shoulder on the window and nudges it, falling into the cafe. Looking back at the woman, he smiles nervously. The atmosphere in the room changes. Hot air pours down through the doorway, and cold ones uninvited into our warm haven. He closes the door, and the bell jerks on its holder, slicing through the quiet hum of the cafe. They go to order, shoes clicking on the wooden floor. Everyone turns to watch them. They order two cups to go. She holds the little container in her hands, drawing it to her lips. Wisps of steam curl about her face as she breathes in the scent of the coffee. He picks up his cup and they head toward the door. 
I notice the way he looks at her, the way she reacts to his gaze. It touches something raw inside. I glance around the room and wonder how I ended up here. The old lady is scraping the side of her ice cream bowl, and the sound of the spoon on porcelain makes the hairs on the back of my neck stick up. I pick up my coat, sling my bag over my shoulder, click my heels across the floor, and head out after the couple. Halfway down the street I glance back and see what the light that shone so brightly before, so invitingly, has ebbed. Up ahead of me the bright white lights of apartment windows hover in the sky, shining down to the streets below, and for the first time I look up, up through the windows and imagine the lives playing out there. Continue up the hill, away from the river, until you reach a set of steps. Take these steps and pause at the halfway point. Cry by Lucy Menzies Sweet and tender, my love, hand over fist, my acidic tears arrive. Step after step, the grey staircase melts into one, escalating as the hurt becomes unbearable, and it cannot be taken any more, and I trip and I fall. You do not cry. The beast rises, snivelling. Man becomes the impotent devil. The concrete cushions me. I lie with my skirts tangled, tears gliding, messed. You, hooligan, pick me up and steady me. My elbow, bloody like lips. This is our secret. I am sworn into the bosom of my sisterhood. This silence is my death. Continue to the top of the steps. Cross over the zebra crossing directly in front of you. Cross over again and head left, underneath the railway bridge. Just after the bridge is the Holy Jesus Hospital. Walk alongside its arches and pause outside its entrance. The Silent Arches by Jonathan David Lim Stop. Be still. Listen to the silence of the arches. Do you hear what they are saying? Can you neglect their awful cries of dread and panic and despair? Silent arches, portals to a hungry soul, spitting seedless friars to mop wet streets. An endless cycle of hope, hunger, homelessness, hospice, hops, hostility. Lock up our doors, keep locked our souls in prison rooms, fit for dreadful kings. Build towers to store your hoard and cellars where the wrecked should lay, till the jailer returns, with keys a-jangling, whistling a tune, whilst the madness slowly closes in. Archway eyes look deep into the hearts of men and women both, to see their worth as freeman or drunkard, or widow or child, or friar or king. Be wary. The silhouettes of spirits haunt the arches day after day, waiting for room and board, and bread and soup. Why not pay a penny to make one penny more? Half buried, half dead, the arches hold the walls of cold brick and chipped mortar to support the funds of charitable men giving back in charitable ways. Expect not to hear about the deaths, or the screams, or the madness that befalls the arches. Expect only to hear the arches themselves. Stop, be still, listen to the silence of the arches. The walk is now complete. To find your way back into town, take the underpass ahead of you. This will bring you out at the Pilgrim Street roundabout. 
From here, you can head straight over to the return to the station, or explore the city further. On behalf of all the writers whose works you've enjoyed, thank you for listening.